Escape from Plan A. Who were over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood. From the father down the street who fought in Korea. Or you can get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. Hey, welcome back to Escape from Plan A. Uh, today I got Philip. Philip, what's going on? Not too much. How are you doing, teen? Pretty good, man. Um, and Jess, Jess, we're back. Hey, indeed. Uh, so today we want to talk about Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is like, I think he's got the number one top selling book on Amazon right now, which is quite an accomplishment. It's been up there for a while. You know, like him, hate him, or, you know, apathetic or don't know who he is. I think one thing that that you can do is ignore him because I think he's just um, he's just such a force with the with the youth culture right now in America and, and may, I'm guessing in Canada too, Philip. So I thought maybe like, you know, you, the three of us have talked about him sort of informally and he, his name keeps coming up in, in chats and stuff. So, I, we, you know, we figured, hey, let's do a podcast about him. What do you think he is? Like, what do you think he represents? And why do you think people are gravitating towards him? I think in, in very anxious times, he offers very simple advice. Very extremely simple, almost comically simple advice. And if that's, if that's uh, simplistic or profound, it kind of depends on your positioning relative to what he's saying. My frustration for years in reading article after article, people wringing their hands and complaints, sometimes, I mean, often about legitimate things, but the articles always conclude with, and we should talk about this, or we need to find a solution, like a, a solution. But no one actually, no one does the work in in actually putting their necks out there and proposing something. This is mm. always pushed off into the ether or pushed off onto someone else's plate. And here comes this guy who actually has a, you know, a set of very simple rules you can follow that promise some amount of effect in your day to day and over time promises some amount of meaning to what you're doing. Right. And I think that's very attractive. Yeah, he's been described as a, a kind of new father figure. But when he's described that way, he's always described as a new father figure to a very specific demographic, right? And I think this is kind of like framing in context for our conversation, but like he's obviously described as someone who is um, sort of a new leader, a new voice for younger, often white men. Though I think there's this open question of, is, is it just that group or is it actually a wider group of people who are finding solace in his message? I mean, just stepping back for a sec, if if you don't know who Jordan Pe- uh, Jordan Peterson is, he's he's a professor of is he a, uh, psychology or sociology or psychology both? psychology at like in, at University of Toronto, right? And I think he's that's still correct. he's tenured there. He's still there. That's his official job title. Yeah, despite mm-hmm. a lot of tumultuous you know uh, controversies around the whole um, some some like free speech related uh, legislation in Canada, he's still uh, well employed there. Right. And he's, um, you know, he's a he's a popular but polarizing figure. That's the thing about him that I think warrants um, consideration is that the youth who support him seem to f- uh, fervently support him. And mm-hmm. those who oppose him are, you know, smashing windows and protesting everywhere he goes. He's he's a very divisive figure. And I, I guess for me, it's not so clear as to why. And 
I do agree, like, on the pro side of him, like, the I, I do understand why young guys are drawn to him, and it's mostly guys. I don't really see mm-hmm. a lot of female followers of him, and, and I think he doesn't really talk to females. I think he's talking specifically to men, or to, to very young men. I do see that father figure side to him. I mean, he kind of, he sounds like Kermit the Frog, right? Like, people have... <laughs> He sounds almost exactly like Kermit the Frog sometimes, and he dresses like uh, Mister Rogers. You know, he, mm-hmm. he wears like cardigan sweaters and stuff, and he's he's not an imposing figure, and he has this manner about him that is very sort of like tough dad mm-hmm. and just like you had you had said this before, which I really started to fill in the gaps for me, which is he is like talking to a generation of mostly white guys who grew up in, um, a lot of them came from broken homes, um, or, you know, they were children of um, divorce. And, you know, it seems like family stability was something that they were missing. And, you know, regardless of all his, like, you know, he's got some really, there was another one, I think the first book that he got famous for was Maps of Meaning. And I I haven't touched, I haven't read any of his books, but from what I understand, it's it's a large volume it's incomprehensible it touches on like every bit of science every branch of science ever i guess leaving aside all his like grand theories of stuff i think he just yeah i think he just fills in that missing father figure for a lot of for a lot of guys i think that's what it is i think so in demeanor and presentation uh he's smart dad right he's accomplished he's very intelligent and he's tough yeah and he's giving no nonsense practical but it's it's a it's stern advice. It's definitely not yeah. handholding or coddling. Uh, it's it's he he's not promising an easy path, right? He's actually promising work, but he's right. also promising meaning that's derived from that work. That this this work that you do on yourself carries meaning and value of its own, and it yields tangible benefits. What does it boil down to? Do you think? Like, what is that advice? I listen to his stuff. He's got these like super long lectures online. You know, um, he's, he's talking about Pinocchio, he's, he's talking about Jesus, he's talking about lobsters. And I try to distill what it is that he's actually trying to say. And I get the feeling like basically what he's just trying to say is just like suck it up and just do what you got to do. Like, you know, I, I mean, he's there's just no, there's no real magic to what he's saying. Like, no, and I think that's that's the magic. I think that's the uh-huh. magic. That we're not pro- that right. he's not promising a giant theory, and I think it's interesting because he is coming from a background where he is breaking down, you know, global myths, right? These giant uh, bodies of faith and re- religion and culture, giant mm. forces, but boiling it down to the personal. And I think, but I think he's coming at it from an eminently practical perspective, mm-hmm. like from the mm-hmm. perspective of the of the st- the lost individual. I mean, it's I think it's not a coincidence that a figure like this would be coming from the wor- world of psychology. It's tapping into it's tapping into a malaise that's going yeah. on out there. Right. And I think also like sp- not not just the lost individual, but specifically this idea of a lost masculinity. And I think you guys actually touched on this uh, in a previous pod about uh white fragility but it's actually a lot of that right that that what we ended up deciding is sort of a outdated almost obsolete masculinity he's actually trying to bring that back and make it make it hip again yeah i think i mean i think i see his work as uh split into two categories one is um describing what is at the macro level that's uh that's just what is i don't think he ever 
uh, goes into giving prescriptive advice as it relates to macro social trends. Mm-hmm. Only the only time he actually gives advice is in the second realm, which is the individual. So that's the only time he actually goes past what is and goes into what. You, okay, so given what is, this is what you should do or what you could do about that if you want, you know, X, Y, or Z benefit in your life. So you're saying what is is like the the descriptive and the individual part is the prescriptive, like what he's suggesting you do. Yeah. So I I mean if I've seen critique of him where uh where uh, i i i think they're based in some amount of legitimacy but i think they're they're slightly misunderstanding what what's going on here uh mm-hmm. they're conflating the two so by describing what is right that there are hierarchies in nature that they're do like uh, time and time again we see societies create hierarchies or sets of beliefs that structure people in these in these different ways uh but there is always structure to, across history and across time, maybe there's a biological reason for that. Let's mm-hmm. think that through. Uh, but then, and I don't think he ever says, and this is what society should do, right? Uh, but when it comes down, and then he boils it down, and when he's talking to the individual, he's saying, okay, given that you are a member of, you are just a, uh, you're just a, a, a small part of this giant system that's uh, working on you. Uh, mm-hmm. Given the all the different forces acting on you, this is these are the steps that you can take to effect some change in your own life. That doesn't that doesn't translate to a macro trend. It's interesting that you describe it in that manner, and specifically as him addressing the individual. Because if you look at the prescriptive advice or kind of words of wisdom he gives to his audience, a, a lot of what he, where he's coming from is. Um, and I think he might explicitly say this is you should really just follow the rules and just conform to society as it wants you to be, unless it's a really good reason to do so otherwise. He's an anti anarchist. He's an archist, right? Like he. Yeah. I mean, he comes out and says it. He's a conservative, right? He's a sexual mm-hmm. conservative. He believes mm-hmm. in, uh, he, be- he believes in, you know, ultimately preserving the maximum amount of freedom for the individual. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. And uh, I know this is libertarian speak, but I mean, I, I also think it's interesting that it comes right out and says it. Right. I think right. we've spent a lot of time with people kind of couching their actual their beliefs behind some pretty language. Yeah. And kind of relying on some dog whistling to 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 uh, to, tra- to transmit that signal. I think right. it's in- and I I think part of his appeal is just being able to say it, putting it in, in very concrete, easy to understand terms. I am a conservative. This is what I stand for. Yeah. Come at maybe, me. Maybe this is something you guys can help me and the audience work out because I'm not as familiar with this terminology, but he actually describes himself as a classical liberal. What does that mean? Is that is that libertarianism? Is Yeah, classical liberal is if you boil it down to the way they – because like – the mm-hmm. definition to me is it's more important as to how they define it, the quote classical liberals, and they'll they'll always say the same thing, um, which is that um, uh, progressives want equality of outcome, classical liberals want equality of opportunity. Okay, and that's their starting point, which sounds nice. I think it's a serious. It's it's, it's I think it's a slogan. Because what you would cons- – to me, the problem, for example, is like, well, how do you distinguish between what an opportunity is and what an outcome is? Yeah. So me applying to colleges, that's kind of like if I get into a great college, that's kind of an outcome. 
mm-hmm. that's also kind of an opportunity too. So I just don't think, you know, this distinction between opportunity and outcome, I think is the problem with the starting point of the classical liberal, but that's besides the point. I think if you look at Jordan Peterson, you can start to see ways in which that conservative and a somewhat racial encoding come into what he says. And this is where I start worrying. See, mm-hmm. like people say the critics, the common like kind of leftist liberal critics of uh, critiques of him, especially from uh, from from white critics, they they just say he's full of nothing. He's just overwhelming amounts of common sense that anyone could say but he just decides to write the shit out of it yeah there was this massive uh long read piece in this like very highbrow political magazine or website called what currentaffairs.com or something that basically spent a ton of time saying like he's speaking gibberish like that's the that is the the leftist critique of him and i think the leftist critique of him suggests that he's a charlatan that's just out there trying to hog attention and stuff but that to me kind of removes a certain amount of racial encoding that i'm picking up and one of the things that I definitely pick up from him is, okay, so he's he is projecting this overwhelming sense of like, I got huge backup for what's common sense. But then he'll he will say specific things that 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 do form part of like, you know, the the Jordan Peterson vision. One of them is that the hierarchies that we see in life, and he, and he, and he says science proves this, who knows whether he's right, but that hierarchies come about not through human hierarchies don't come about through power relationships they come through competence relationships meaning the hierarchies that we see in life the the systems of power in which we in which we're forced to um uh, to, to to work in and, and not resist and cooperate with they're there they're justified because they're based on competence competence rises to the top and it's not about power. And he gives examples of, uh, I don't know, monkeys and stuff about how power doesn't work because the alpha male will always get killed by, uh, you know, like a gang two of betas, uh, yeah. a gang of gang of two betas or something like that. Right. And I guess my point is like, you know, you're looking at a world where the, the current hierarchy with um, white men on top is being challenged. I don't think we have to go through the litany. You start with me, too, and you immediately can see all the different assaults on the hierarchy the white male hierarchy this is a defense of the hierarchy which says no these are not power this is not white male privilege which he says is uh is is like you know a a bad word you can't say white privilege right right um these hierarchies are built on fundamental uh you know almost darwinian uh uh measures of competence they are Mm. the way they are because that's the best form they could be so just accept that and then he goes in and, and resists any sort of identity politics type uh, resistance to this hierarchy. To me, it just adds up to, uh, to giving some more weight to the, to the pushback, to the, white, to the white guy pushback, you know? I mean, it is super convenient that at the top of these hierarchies are white men, right? I mean, naturally, that's where his audience comes from. I guess yeah. one thing we might ask ourselves as like people of color is like how do we fit into this world he foresees? I think it, the way it works, uh, it play, the advice he gives to the individual applies across the board. This is almost like it's dad advice, mm-hmm. right? You know, stand up, you know, put your shoulders back. That's his classic line, right? And then, and then get out there, right? There's evil to confront. Mm-hmm. That's individual advice that anyone can apply. His discussion on hierarchies, that's a different matter. And I think he has the privilege of not having to think about different struct hierarchical systems, right? Because he's always assuming here, 
at the level of the individual, if they actually do stand up straight, put their shoulders back, get out there and do, that there is a good thing waiting for them, that they can win through merit through merit and hard work, right? Right. The next part of that, the part of that equation he doesn't have to consider, or that him and his audience don't have to consider is, well, what else is out there that prevents me from maximizing my, my talents, my merit, in actually being competent enough to win at this particular thing I want in my life, right? And that those are the effects we're... T- struggling with the ones that we have to take into consideration so i think that's where it falls apart are you saying that he's just like ignoring racism altogether i think he is i I mean well think about it from the level of the individual right what he's saying is if you and the the left critique on this is on the money it's simple practicable actionable advice for the individual right why is he saying that right because he's I mean, I don't think he's irresponsible. He would say he would if he's talking to a patient or giving advice to people. I I do think he's legit trying to help them out, right? But what he's kind of assuming is that if this horde of people did take his advice and got out there, they could win in that in the outside world. That the, that the world will be kind enough to allow them to win or fail by the by their own merit. Not because of the color of their skin or their or their genitalia, none of that, right? Right. Because he's right. he he does, I mean, competence, as he says, is his primary metric for success. So in that sense, yeah, the Western dominance is Darwinian. They won in a Darwinian sense. So they were for this for their particular time and place. They were quote the best. So that's why it exists. I think Asian. I think Asians uh, present a problem for his theory then because. One of one of the weaknesses of how he presents this is he he, he is actually at times extremely concrete in what he says, mm-hmm. and I think what he says sounds to differ from what he writes, but what he said is basically that competence is is in the modern uh, in the modern world uh, largely about intelligence, and that there is really only one relevant measure of intelligence, and that's IQ. And he's adamant about that. He's like, this con- this theory of multiple intelligence is utter bullshit. There's only one measure. It's IQ. And, you know, and then he just, he just like preemptively quashes any challenge to that. Okay. I think there's a clear, <laughs> there's a clear agenda to that. Because I think white men t- tend to score higher on the IQ spectrum than other groups, except for Asians. And so to me, it's like, Okay, if IQ is the sole uh, indicator of intelligence, and intelligence is the most important uh, factor in what he calls competence, then why don't Asians rise up this competence hierarchy uh, at much greater levels than whites and white men in particular? That's a simple counterpoint to his whole his whole shtick, right? I think so. I can't. When I heard that, I was like, you know, you're you're really leaving out an important exception here. So, you know. Yeah, for sure. And if if you think of him as a self help guru, right? The the main critique that people have of self help self help and the general idea that you can work hard and you know get to success is this idea that completely excludes systemic effects, right? Which people of color and other uh, marginalized groups face. So it, it's, I mean, Asians are a counterpoint in that sense to his theory. Yeah, and it goes unaddressed because you never hear him talk about it. You know, he, he's he's just incredibly dismissive about any of that. I mean, he's like, he, like he'll throw his arm out and just like, that crap, that stuff, like, duh, don't even throw. And I think he's tapping into this sort of like white mental frustration with all this 
talk. I think they're just getting hit from all sides with grievances, you know, and there's this real desire to just shut it all out. That's a pretty interesting piece, right? Because he is very happy to attack certain marginalized groups, like especially the LGBT community, which is what he became infamous for in the first place. But there's some other areas where he does not like to tread. And race is actually, it feels like one of them. Aside from saying that white privilege is not a thing, he doesn't go out and specifically attack racial groups because I think he knows that that's going to be a problem for him. I think so. And I think that kind of trips up a lot of Asian people as to what Asian guys in this case, because this is right, mostly right. a masculinity. I call it is I don't know it's a movement or whatever, but it's a moment at least. And um, I think a- Asian guys, you know, um, uh, Q wrote that article for us, and then he he we we dropped it in in, in a few places, and and predictably, and I, I was I was looking forward to this to, for this result. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of divisive and pretty pumped up opinions about him. Mm-hmm. You know, the people were coming in with like all caps saying like, you know, um, come at me, bro. Debate me. I will debate you on anything. I'm prepared to debate you on anything and I will win because I've Jordan Peterson knows everything. He knows everything. Uh, right. Acolytes, you know, and then others were just like, this guy is no different than your average Fox News watching conservative white man. Like, you know, just ignore. Him. I, I feel like Asian Asian American guys are confused as to how to think about him. And, you know, I, I find that we often have trouble with that because so many of the things he says is like if you just take race out of it, you know, we find that Asians and whites often fa- fall on the same um, sides of things like affirmative action mm-hmm. and, you know, hiring practices at Google, etc. Yep. I just feel like we get confused. Our interests get, you know, the 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 way we intersect with whiteness is all is all fucked up yeah. and, and complex. Yeah, we saw that too. I mean, with the article I recently wrote about um, uh, titled White Techies Are Not Your Friends, um, yeah. in the same spaces, we had the same kind of, thank you, uh, the same kind of resistance where they said, no, we should actually side with white men in this case because they're fighting this you know, lawsuit for us. Like for once we're being recognized, yada, yada while completely right. ignoring the warning signs around, listen, we're just being used as pawns once again in a battle that's not going to end up well for us, right? We're not going to be dominant in any way. We're just going to get a little bit of acceptance in exchange for being used for harming a lot of other groups of people. Um, and that was fascinating. And, and I, I think a, a question that came out from these two kind of pushbacks was, what is this profile, I think, of what is this profile of Asian men who are susceptible to being okay with whiteness not whiteness but like with with movements like jordan peterson um and with with you know being on the side of white men who usually are not your allies right is is it is it like the same profile uh, as the white men that are uh excited about jordan peterson is it you know asian guys that come from broken families like what is it precisely i wonder has gotten them so kind of uh riled up about jordan peterson so here's, here's my thing. I see Jordan B. Peterson occupying for a different class of white people the exact same space that the Dalai Lama occupied for the upper crust about 10 years ago. Oh, interesting. But what is that? <laughs> I've never understood what they saw in the Dalai Lama either. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I was at, I was at MIT when the Dalai Lama came to visit um, for some like, like, brain and spirit conference, you know, where they hooked him up to some monitors and then gave talks about meditation and things like that. And I mean, it was amazing. I mean, 
it was like billionaire city. I think uh, Bill Gates came by, uh, you know, Uma Thurman's dad, who was, you know, very prominent. Richard Gere was there. Um, seriously well-heeled, well-educated white people sitting around, sipping champagne, eating cheese, and hobnobbing with the Dalai Lama. And that, that, con- yeah. that contrast is, is interesting. I mean, he was held in extremely high regard by a set of cerebral, very accomplished people, academics, uh, white collars, uh, tapping into this whole vein of spirituality, right? It's exotic, right? Mining into that, the Eastern, Oriental, you know, wisdom, uh, mystical, spirituality, all that crap. I see Jordan B. Peterson playing, filling in that exact same role for everyone else. Tapping into the pillars of Western society, right? So we're talking about yeah. the people who are kind of cut off from that power structure. Far enough away that that does seem exotic. So we are talking about science here, in this case, when we're talking about Western civilization. That's the canonical pillar upon which it stands, right? So we have yeah. this guy come in who's able to understand history, science, psychology, all these, uh, the greats of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. He's familiar with all that. He knows the words. He's an academic himself. This is why he's appealing to who he appeals to. Does it, I mean, in your theory, does it contrast with how the Dalai, Dalai Lama might represent that from like an Eastern perspective? Or do you just mean he is just there to be that figure for that long tail of folks who are not in the upper crust of whiteness? The latter. And I think the appeal, it, the appeal of these figures is in how far removed the audience is from that core, from that core tenet, that, that core... Uh, I'm, there's a word for this that I'm not articulating properly. The mystical foundation upon that that these civilizations uh, are built off of. So for these cerebral white collars, you know, doctors, lawyers, you know, business people, um, in uh, in America and Europe, that what's more exotic than a Tibetan monk tapping into that spiritual? Uh, that's uh, mysticism. Is, is it like a, I'm just trying to understand like the contrast here. Is it like a highbrow versus lowbrow thing? Is it like a spiritual versus down-to-earth thing? What's the contrast I here? think it has a lot to do with what you want for yourself, what you want to tap into, and what you feel distanced from. And I think that, and I, I mean, I feel equally distant from the Dalai Lama as from Jordan B. Peterson, probably because of that position. I'm kind of halfway between all of that. There's nothing that speaks to me at a visceral level. I'm not, I mean... There's, I'm not going out of my way to go see either, and there's nothing that uh, makes me believe in them as like my personal guru or something. I I, I gather it's because um is because you're a woman. Um, there is something uniquely male about his message that resonates, I think, with young guys the same way that a lot of things in the past have resonated in the, in 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 a, like tonally. The, the person that he most reminds me of is Tyler Durden from Fight Club, which uh, I'm not trying to be cute here with a reference to a, a movie character, but that, that movie, Fight Club, in the 90s had, I think, a similar galvanizing effect for young men, especially of college age and, and kind of after college age. And, and it was a big thing. Like, you know, that, that character ended up, like, really um, influencing work culture. And and I th- I feel like it's not really that well understood or appreciated how much like a movie or you know that kind of thing can 
uh, can influence things. And I think what it is, is there's this line in in uh, Fight Club where Tyler Durden, who's the Brad Pitt character, says he's giving a sort of like anti-motivational speech. And it's all about how your life has been totally feminized. And he's talking to Ed Norton, who is obsessed with shopping in Ikea catalog. And he goes, he, he doesn't have any feelings anymore. He he goes to support groups just to just to hug and cry and you know, Meatloaf is there with man boobs and stuff. It's this whole vision of this coddled commercial culture feminizing this, you know, untamable male spirit. And I think there's something that happens to you in college where you get that like you get a little bit of tunnel vision as to the rest of your life. Like, the rest of your life becomes this big deal. Uh, and there's a vertigo induced. And at that moment, you have these people start saying that, you know, your your inner your inner man, uh, it, like, modern society will never provide you that step across the breach into real manhood. You're just going to be, you know. And I feel like, you know, that's what... Jordan B. Peterson offers an, a sense of urgency of what I don't know, but a sense of urgency that you got to do something about this life. Because, you know, I think about some kid like, you know, he's 23, 24, working at GameStop in some, you know, second tier city or something. And, you know, what's he looking at in the future? It's just this sort of like tunnel straight to, you know, oblivion. And there's no the thing with that is just there's no urgency. And there's no energy in that. And this guy comes along and he's, he's saying nothing but common sense. Clean your room. I mean, I think literally one of the 12 rules in that book is clean your room. Yeah. And that one kind of works, he, though. I got to say. <laughs> Cleaning your room. Yeah. No, it does. Yeah. But but but, you know, it doesn't it doesn't get you a better job than at GameStop. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I just I just feel like it's 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 emotional food, like it's spiritual junk food. And just like Fight Club was, it's it's talking directly to something that's missing, I, you know, something that's missing in modern, you know, consumer culture, man. And there it's there. It's it's he's like a product that's being marketed to them to fill that gap, that that missing part. And it, it just sort of adds a certain urgency to your life. But what it is, there's no explanation of it. Like, what is he calling people to do? I have no idea. Can we try to s- stretch that? I like this analogy because I do see, I was a big fan of that movie. Um, and I do see, like, how Tyler Durden, as a force of, you know, unleashing this male spirit, is much like what Jordan Peterson's doing for men today. But there's a difference, right? Because the, the difference is that from the movie, like, Tyler Durden does it through anarchy, Right. Project Mayhem was the big operation they had in that movie where they were just like causing anarchy and mayhem in the city as a way to unleash that that um, uh, that that male spirit. Whereas Jordan B. Peterson mm-hmm. is coming from a different angle where he's actually trying to do it through responsibility. Yeah, it's conservatism. It's yeah, I'm actually going to push back a little on that one. When you talk about urgency, I think mm-hmm. the urgency was there. I think it was mm-hmm. spilling into some very bad pl- it still is spilling into some very bad some ba- bad channels right but I think mm-hmm. I mean even following you know like the red pill the various you know uh, male related cesspools for a while right and I think that that taps into that urgency you speak to 
right? So I think mm-hmm. the urgency was mm-hmm. already there. It's not like he sparked it, but I think he provided an alternative to those channels. I do sure. think I do see I that, that you know ever since he uh, rose to prominence, the tone in those places changed quite significantly. Oh, how so? There are still. Um, I mean, it's uh, it's providing an alternative. I mean, the red pill ends in anarchy, right? That's that's the end game here. If you take the red pill to its logical conclusion, and I think there was a sense of hollowness in that, or a sense of panic at what that end stage game was going to be. And here he comes. He's actually saying the opposite, right? And it's amazing to see uh, how that 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 one eighty uh, viewpoint is still adopted with such. Uh, without any cognitive distance by the same crowd. He's actually saying, no, you have to be very careful with whom you have sex, right? Sex is a dangerous uh, a dangerous uh, weapon in the wrong hands without careful consideration. You want some responsibility in your life. So no more of this, you know, strategizing how to, you know, get laid on the first date and bounce before you have to buy your breakfast, right? This is like, these are deeply conservative values he's promoting and people are buying it. There's, they actually wanted those guardrails, like walls around their life to tell them this is how, this is what you have to do to get uh, this uh, amount of meaning out of your life. Like, Casual sex is not the way to do that. You actually want to, you know, settle down, find a, make yourself a man that a woman will want to settle down with and give you children. Yeah, he's fairly pro-marriage, I think, right? He is. He's very pro-marriage, very sexually conservative, and he says this. Um, he believes in in saddling men down with a lot of responsibility. And, I mean, the biological connection there, I think, is he's saying that men are programmed to find meaning and value and stability in that arrangement. So even though in the modern time, in modern times, that arrangement can seem restrictive, uh, this is ultimately what we're going to have to tunnel th- through to as a society to channel male energy in a, pr- in a productive way. So it sounds like you're pretty optimistic about there being a potential good outcome from this. I do, yeah. That, I mean, I, I think see danger. I yeah. think there, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not that uh, I actually like that he doesn't speak to race that much. I want there to be more of of that out there from different viewpoints, c- taking into consideration all the other all the other struggles that are going on. He can't talk about he can't talk about you know minority oppression Mm -hmm. and he shouldn't i think he is talking to race though in a way in a negative way in a suppressive way that's the one thing about him that i find uh troubling is that there there is no underlying ethical base for him like like philip you're you're saying what's a classical liberal and Mm -hmm. i just with someone says to me a classical liberal is basically someone who's like you can't argue with me you know it's this shift it's this really weird sort of like almost principleless system of ethics where it's kind of like, you know, I get to say and do whatever and the limit of my freedom ends, my freedom ends where yours begins or something like that. Every man an island, this kind of thing. I feel like there there are definitely, right now it's a racial moment. There's, there, there, there is a racial reckoning happening in this country. And the, the right has really been about trying to avoid or suppress that. It, 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 it finally got to the point where you have open rebellion against, you have white identity popping up as a thing. And the in a way, I feel like Jordan Peterson is kind of taking what 
TRP let PUA led to sort of like white nationalist alt right type things, and it's like a, this handing of a white torch. And I feel like guys like him, and there's others, right? Like Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro, guys like that. Um, they're taking it and they're saying, okay, let's let's resubmerge all this racial talk because it's actually to our advantage. If you look around, white guys are still in a superior place, but we've got to protect. Like right now, we've got to protect whiteness. This is not a time to be expanding it or whatever. So let's right. protect it. And what they're doing now is like throwing a ton of intellectual smoke around uh, a very simple idea, which is nobody has any standing to challenge the dominance of white men. It, I mean, it boils down to that at the end of the day and you wrap it in, 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 in stuff about competence hierarchies, you wrap it in stuff about, you know, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how the lobster figures into this, but the physiological effects of, of hierarchy like hierarchy is basically like built into our ner- our nervous systems from like our evolutionary like prehistory and stuff mm-hmm. don't challenge nature because we are nature i think this is right. kind of like white men rule by nature i you know that's how i see it and he says james damore as an example is a kid with a spine of steel i think that you know james damore i don't i didn't support his firing i thought that was a terrible move by google but i think that you know Zizek, my favorite guy, had a pretty good critique, had a sort of Lacanian critique. Philip, take a shot. Yeah, I'm taking a shot right now. <laughs> okay, cool. Ah, is that their agreement? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, his, his critique was this. His, he said Lacan, like, Lacan was saying that a man who is pathologically jealous of his wife, if he later finds out that his wife was cheating, is still pathologically jealous, right? Saying that, for example, anti-Semitism, if the things that they say about Jews, that they're you know, good with money that they, um, you know, that they're good at seducing German girls or something like that. If those things were true, it still does not validate or justify anti-Semitism, right? And so I think here there's this similar thing happening with whatever this movement is, which I think is a pro-white masculinity movement at the end of the day, is this this use of the the excesses of the left, uh, of which there are many, uh, and to point to that as justification for the reassertion of white male dominance, I actually disagree. That I, I I think I think I think he's actually talking about the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I saw I know who he's adopted by, and that's troubling. Um, but using his same arguments, you can also say, well, if there's a generation of lost boys, right, lost white boys who are failing in this cultural context, they are not competent. These are not the people who won in this particular battle. Is he arming mm. them to regain superiority? I'm not sure. I mean, I've saw, I saw that, that uh, the clip um, from the talk he gave about white privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know the critique, I, I see the critique and I can understand the, uh, the basis for that critique, that he's actually, that in trying to talk through it, he's dismissing it and kind of, putting it back into the ether, right? The unspoken, right? That which we cannot Mm -hmm. speak of, but exists all around us, right? But if you look at his arguments, he's actually arguing for whiteness, whiteness not being a metric at all that we should be, that, that we should be holding it a value. I mean, it makes, it makes sense, right? What, what's, what, when we talk about white privilege, what are we talking about? Really? Are we really talking about 
you know, pale skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. Are we talking about that? Or are we talking about all the, all the stuff loosely associated with that, those, with this uh, particular phenotype, right? So I think he, Mm. he does raise a lot of points. This is talking about majority privilege, class privilege, uh, the benefits, attractiveness privilege. I mean, that, there's a definite race component there. If one race is considered more attractive than the other, then they will have a boost in you know being evaluated for competency and being allowed to get ahead. But whiteness as a concept itself isn't isn't really a thing. So I think when people, so I think it's it's one of those it was one of those talks where I could see how both sides would would be willing to take that argument for themselves. And in watching the you know. The subsequent reaction videos, you can kind of see that. You see people, you know, on the alt-right saying, yeah, fuck yeah, he's, you know, he's going to bat for us, the beleaguered white man. And on the left, uh, you know, on the left, it's like, what the fuck is this shit? Uh, Is he saying white privilege isn't real? I think he is saying it is real, and it shouldn't be. That's my optimistic interpretation of that, actually. Because when when he's talking about dismissing white privilege, he's actually dismantling why anyone should give a shit about white people except for the things that they've been able to aggregate for themselves that we want a part of. But the fact remains that the overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority of, say, CEOs, upper management, um, Congress, which I think is like in the U.S., 80% male, um, you know, presidents, right, everything. You know, and this, this often gets levied, and he addresses this. Um, but at the, if you look at the very top, uh, it is dominated by white men, Absolutely. and I think that well, how does he address that? Has, I don't think I've seen any reaction. Uh, he t- by him he talks. He doesn't talk about the racial aspect, but he does talk about the male aspect of it, and he addresses that by saying women are not are agreeable and men are disagreeable, and in order to rise to the very top, disagreeability correlates with competence, and so. The the most disagreeable men, and he's and he's got this whole thing about Pareto distributions and stuff, saying of course there you know there are there are disagreeable women, but there's always going to be a more disagreeable man than the most disagreeable woman. That because of these Pareto distributions, that the the high tail end of it will always produce men at the most disagreeable end, and it's it's this really weird statistical justification for both white. monopoly of the highest levels of power as well as the built-in justification for their shitty behavior right it's a really and it's a very suspect little statistical claim that disagreeability is the justification for being leading all of our institutions that's basically his that's the jordan p peterson doctrine which is the most flimsy thing i can can imagine and i think what's going on is that uh over time the, the, the search for justifications for white male dominance of institutional power has been eroding. There is no justification for it. Pareto distributions of disagreeability is just one of many stupid theories as to why this is the case. The, the reality we know, it's powered hierarchies, right? This challenge from the left, from identity politics against this white male uh, patriarchy, white male dominance, it waited until that became like mob rule. It, it waited for the moment where there started to become a backlash against this because there are notable instances of this going too far. And 
like with all sort of crackdowns, you wait for, you know, you point out the most egregious behavior as justification for pushing back against all of it. And in this moment, I think he's capitalizing on backlash to say, you know, use those examples of the of the most egregious thing, which, for example, would be that law. Philip, I think it was a Canadian law that said that you had to use Oh, the pronouns? Uh, pronouns like, pronoun, zi- yeah. like Zer and stuff for transgender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, it just sounds ridiculous. It sounds both, you know, Orwellian and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was a perfect thing for him to point out uh, with it's a white man having a network moment. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore. And it just gave them free reign to just destroy the entire concept that white men should be challenged on account of there being too many white men in power. So are you saying that his success at doing that is has a lot more to do with timing, like precise timing than it has to do with him having like actually provable scientific rationale behind his arguments? Oh, for sure. I I don't think that he has presented anything in terms of, and that was the critique that you read, right? He he's a, he's good at bringing in just a little bit enough of everything, so that there's no one type of academic that feels it's necessary to address him. Right. But right? more like more no importantly, se- there, there's appetite mm-hmm. for it. There's appetite for it, and no serious evolutionary psychologist really. There's nothing to rebut. There, he has not made any claims that are like really that they're, they're, none of the claim, scientific claims that he makes, makes are cutting edge or interesting. They're all based on old studies and they're, they're pretty simple things. Anyway, it's the social conclusion. He'll take, he'll take something from the realm of biology and then use a, make a sociological conclusion out of it. Now, right. what kind of scientist is meant to go critique that? Neither the sociologist really, or maybe it's, but neither the sociologist or the biologist really deigns it to be like, Oh, yeah, Jordan Peterson is a valid, you know, he's a serious scholar in my field, and I really should address the thing he's saying. They all think of him as some, like, you know, guru that he's not even really in the sciences. So, yeah, so, I, mean, so, yeah I, I think it's Evolutionary timing. psychology, I mean, it's unfalsifiable. So what's the point? You get dragged mm-hmm. into a mud, a mud wrestling match uh, before you even get anywhere. So, right. I mean, right. so that's the realm he's operating in, for sure, yeah. So why is the yeah. left having such a hard time dealing with him right now, right? Because he, from the outside, and, and also from like looking at all these high-profile articles on him, from, like the New York Times, New Yorker, um, you know, a lot of leftist rags coming out and saying like he's he's doing a good job. We listen to him. Like why why is there a hard time shutting down the inaccuracies of or non-accuracies of, of what he's saying um, if he's not actually saying anything at all? Like, again, is it just a timing thing? No, I think they're ignoring uh, the psychology behind it. I think they're ignoring the what he's there's what he says and what that means to his audience. And they're completely a ignoring it or b dismissing it and then wringing their hands and saying, I just don't get it. You know, these hicks must be dumb. Yeah, they definitely they definitely dismiss him a lot. And it, it's I don't think it's an effective way of responding to him. It's it's not. And it's uh, it also feeds into exactly the, the cultural milieu that, that led to his ascendance. Mm. This constant sneering at uh, at this person who... I mean, let's face it. A lot of that, that sneering comes from who his audience is. Right. So it's still... I still see that as an offshoot of that same... Uh, the same cultural forces that he's been so effective at being... Uh, sta- presenting himself as a counterpoint to. Yeah, I think he's... I think he does have the upper hand here. You know, one of the reasons... 
One of the reasons I think it is important to get to kind of wrap, get, get an understanding of this guy is because I do think he's kind of representing the future, or at least the near-term future. I definitely think this guy's going to be relevant. I'm not saying he's he can't run for raw office in the U.S., of course, but I'm saying like he's someone who has such like such connection with the youth, especially white male youth, that I'm sure he's going to be like relevant in terms of politics. I think he mentioned this at a recent talk he did uh, somewhere in Canada, but he's been kind of a, working on a consultancy basis with Canadian conservative politics. Um, and what just happened actually in in the news here recently is that in Ontario, um, can, the candidate Doug Ford, who was brother to the notorious Toronto mayor Rob Ford, um, won <laughs> won the uh, conservative leadership race just a week a weekend ago, I guess. Um, and today, today he came out supporting Trump as well, right? Like that was never something he did really publicly, uh, but Peter like just today, so- yeah, absolutely. And then people have always talked about Rob Ford and Doug Ford and the Fords in general as being the you know the uh, populist candidate, the 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 Trump of Canada, right? Mind you, they're they're not running for you know federal uh you know leadership but the effects are still large like ontario is a super you know important uh economic force within within canada and so he is now coming up against this uh, election uh in june i think or july where he has actually has a pretty good chance of uh, knocking out kathleen Wynne, who's the uh liberal leader who's not very favored right now by anybody in the province and it's a very real danger a lot of us are talking about it here and it's it's um yeah, very. I think very related, and, I, and I'm willing to bet a lot of money that Jordan Peterson is helping Rob Ford or yeah Doug Ford with his efforts at communicating his platform to younger conservative Canadians for sure. You're saying Doug Ford's came out to support Trump uh, or Doug Peterson did today? But Jordan. Oh, Doug Ford. Yeah, I'd be surprised if Peterson. Yes, said but that. Peterson yeah. is working he's as too, a consultant to, to this guy. He said he is working as a consultant to. Uh, uh, conservative, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada, including the, the I assume the PC uh, company, or the PC uh, party, which is the provincial uh, arm uh, of the Conservatives. So yeah, there's a good chance that he is consulting with him on how to reach out to younger voters in Ontario. So, well, that blows. Yeah, it's very real. Retract though. about fifteen. Retract about fifteen percent of my glowing praise. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, no, he's over as far as I'm concerned the minute he sets foot in the political realm. That's not where he belongs. Mm. You don't think he'd fare well there? No, it's not a matter of like like worrying about his well-being. I, I, I don't think this is a... This is just not where uh, he's able to provide uh, insight. I mean, one of the reasons I did respect him was he was always very clear uh, in, make, in, in not speaking to things he felt was out of his area of expertise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I respected that. This is. But what are those? I mean, areas? people ask him about all sorts of crap. I mean, they they ask him about you know politics. You know, people will ask him about Trump or Hillary or something, and he'll say, uh, "This is not this is not a realm I'm capable of speaking uh, proficiently on, so I'm not going to." There are other people you could go to to provide insight into that. I am a I am a scientist. I am this and that, but I won't speak to you know that what you're asking me here. That sounds disingenuous. I think. I feel like what he's doing is avoiding taking political positions because he's a behind the scenes guy. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that'll come out on stage and he just he starts talking about. No, Nietzsche you're right. right away. I mean, so long as so long as what he was saying was reflected in what he was willing to to do, you know, behind, the, you know, off camera, 
that's where I would respect him. I mean, part of the reason why I, I did not care much for, uh, what's that, what's that guy? Neil deGrasse Tyson was his willingness to, to, to mm-hmm. spew about anything that he was asked about, no matter mm-hmm. how far off base, uh, he was from it. And he's using, you know, he's leveraging his, his, his celebrity and his actual legit, you know, science, scientific background, but to talk about things that he really should not be talking about. Yeah, but but Peterson's right. like Peterson's influence is growing rapidly, right? Yeah, I, I think it's it's almost a natural next step to, at least behind the scenes, start to look into politics. If he really is trying to push his worldview more, what better sure. place to do it, right? Than through exactly. So that that shapes, you know, exactly what it puts a different tone to the things he does say on camera it would, or that it he would. puts to paper. Yeah. If he's willing to be a behind-the-scenes like power player, throw his weight behind one candidate, or shape the shape shape something uh, politically. I think the ironic thing about him is that the 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 origin event of Jordan Peterson on the sort of international map was him speaking out so feverish, you know, fervently for 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 free speech. And I think that ultimately his influence will have a very chilling effect on speech because if you look at the way that certain zones of like, there are just certain things that he just won't allow discussion of. And by him not allowing it, it means all his millions of followers will aggressively police the use of words like white privilege and I do think like we're we're seeing the return of this sort of uh, suppression of you know any of that any of that sort of like lefty talk you know and we're gonna re- I think we're gonna see the return of stuff where you can you can like socially brand someone by calling them socialist or Marxist or something like that it's it's re-epithetizing a lot of the left I think is what he's doing. And the effect of that is just going to be really, really, uh, it's going to be really chilling. But a lot of people are going to buy into it because I feel like the left's excesses have put people in the mood to believe that uh, to swing the things in his direction is actually a move for, for freedom of speech because of, you know, some cockamamie policy somewhere about use of acronyms. I didn't see that there was a broad movement to to police speech in a legal way it was like a pretty one-off law but it just proved the case of you know like you just take one excessive stupid move you 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 amplify the shit out of it you generalize it to you know everybody that's opposing you and you rally your side you just you just you know galvanize them by using this as an example you know i don't know i i i I feel like there's a lot of caution to be had about this guy. And I I feel like Asian Americans have to be wary about this group because, you know, I don't think that this group is really committed to the principles of it. And the, the, you know, and this happened with the alt-right and with PUA and TRP, a lot of Asian guys got caught up in that. And it wasn't until they were deep into it that they realized that there was still a system of racial subordination and discrimination um, against non-white guys and Asian guys took the brunt of that and they've always felt themselves later to be excluded from stuff that they thought that they were a part of, you know. So this is going to be the end of part one of a two-part podcast. 
will release part two in a couple days, and this was a good endpoint because we segue more into a talk about the modern meaning of grace and how class factors into it all. We get a little far from the topic of Jordan Peterson, so we figured, hey, let's pinch the loaf here and make another episode out of it.